It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Welcome to a new month here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, because in addition to being the host of this fine program, I have other gigs as well. Fox News contributor over on the TV side. I will be on special report tonight on the panel. Brett Bayer's show, Jillian Turner in tonight for Brett. I'll see you in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern on Fox News Channel. I'm also political editor at townhall.com, where my writing appears every day. On the radio show today, a relatively light guest lineup. Sometimes we have four, even five guests today, just two. Joe Concha in the next hour, Bill Hemmer in the final hour. And I suspect Bill Hemmer is just walking on air as a Cincinnati Bengals fan who was at both playoff games, road wins for his team and route to the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. We'll be talking about all of that and more with Bill Hemmer later in the show. Fox News alert as we get going here. Stats, 74.9 million confirmed cases in the United States. That is a... Massive underestimate of the true number. The good news is the growth in cases is down 42% over two weeks ago. The Omicron wave wave is falling drastically. And hopefully that will be enough to get some people to make some adjustments back toward normalcy. But I won't hold my breath anytime soon. We'll have much more on that topic later in the show. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States, it's millions around the world. But in the United States, the number is 885,543. And deaths are up because deaths are a lagging indicator, something we've talked about on this show for almost two full years. So the cases are crashing down now, which is good. Deaths are back up because we had massively elevated cases during the Omicron wave. And unfortunately, deaths have increased, but the trajectory will follow back down in the days to come. The Dow right now is up 145 points, trading at 35,280. And we'll give you the final number when the markets close in a little less than an hour. I want to begin today's show Because we are here in the Tony Snow studio at Fox's D.C. Bureau. And since we're at Fox's sort of outpost in Washington, D.C., our home away from home, because our headquarters is in New York City. But we have a huge operation here in D.C. as well. I just want to briefly take a moment to toot the horn a little bit for my colleagues. Fox News just became the number one cable news channel For 20 consecutive years, 20 years in a row 
at number one. Now, of course, congratulations go out to our bosses and our colleagues and everyone who makes that happen. But the number one thank you goes to you, our viewers. We're not number one without all of you. So thank you for making us number one, for trusting us for 20 years. Here's to 20 more years at number one. And by the way, in some of the recent years, we haven't just been number one in cable news. We've been number one in cable, beating the ESPNs and TNTs and TBSs of the world, which is pretty impressive stuff. And I'm honored and grateful to be a small part of that success. For which, again, we have all of you to thank. So let me express some appreciation here as we begin the show. But we are here at the D.C. Bureau. That's where the show is based. And I have to be honest with you and just level with you. It's actually pretty scary in Washington, D.C. right now. The crime is unbelievable in our nation's capital. I know that Jen Psaki, who is the White House press secretary, we call her circle back here. She went on a podcast the other day with the pod bros, the Obama bros. And they had a big laugh together about how Fox, our organization, in her mind, is in a weird bubble on crime and misinforming the viewers, just out of touch. In case you missed it, here's what she said. Cut six. If you look at Fox on a daily basis, I mean, do you remember the four boxes that you had that we had on all the TVs, right, which Mm -hmm. is on my TV right now? So right now, just to give you a sense, so CNN, Pentagon, as many as 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert. Okay, true. Same on MSNBC. CNBC is doing their own thing about the market. And then on Fox is Janine Pirro talking about soft on crime consequences. I mean, what what does that even mean? Right. Um, So there's an alternate universe on some uh, coverage. What's scary about it is a lot of people watch that. Yeah. So first of all, Fox, of course, covered all the Russia, Ukraine stuff very heavily. I just saw a segment on it moments ago live on the air here in our studio. We have the same four box that she's talking about here in our studio. You should see the wild stuff that they've got on CNN and especially MSNBC all the time. Setting that aside, she sort of has this little laugh, a little chortle there about, I guess it was the five. And Janine Pirro was talking about soft on crime consequences. What does that even mean? Asked Circleback. What it means is carjackings and rapes, shootings and murders. In 2021, at least 16 major American cities shattered homicide records. That's what soft on crime consequences means, Jen. And you would say, okay, maybe if D.C. didn't have a major problem, maybe she was just in the D.C. bubble. And. You know, the fact that there have been five cops shot in New York already this year, eh, maybe that didn't percolate. Maybe that didn't penetrate into the bubble. The fact that Philadelphia set a record on homicides with their former mayors coming out and saying this is horrible and the left-wing DA is failing as a Democratic mayor, former mayor who came out and said that. Maybe L.A. and San Francisco with mass looting and robbing of the trains by gangs with the governor saying, oh, I don't want to say gangs. Sorry for saying gangs. That's so problematic, so derogatory. They're gangs. It's gang crime. But that's on the other coast. Multiple officers shot in the last week in Texas. Also, that's far, far away from Jen Psaki's desk at the White House. But she doesn't have any excuse because here in Washington, D.C., 
It is bad. So here's one stat about Washington, D.C., right in Jen's backyard. I don't know if she gets a car service to work. Maybe she doesn't look out the window and see some of this stuff. Maybe she doesn't watch local news here in Washington. Carjackings. Let's talk just about carjackings. In 2019, before the pandemic, there were 142 carjackings that year in D.C. That's a lot. 142 carjackings, that's not exactly, you know, great news, but that's what the number was in 2019, 142. Last year, 2021, there were 426 carjackings in Washington, D.C., most at gunpoint, 426. That is more than one a day. Think about that. This is not that big of a city. I know they want to turn it into a state. For political reasons. Oh, yeah, this place really needs two U.S. senators. That's that's the that's the ticket. It's not that big of a city. What, 700,000 people? There's a carjacking every day, sometimes more than one every day in Washington, D.C. Last year, they arrested of the 426. They arrested 149 people, of which 100 were juveniles. Gosh, I wonder if the schools being closed for a year wasn't great for the kids. So far, they've arrested this year in 2022, as we've just entered February, they've arrested 18 carjackers already. 14 of the 18 are kids. We're talking like 15-year-olds. There was a cop shot, a D.C. cop shot the other night. They finally uh, arrested the guy, they think. A D.C. council candidate who wants to be on the D.C. city council got carjacked just the other day by a 17-year-old. The one that I think is really scaring some people was a deadly shooting yesterday in Georgetown on M Street. Now, if you don't know anything about Washington, if you do, I don't need to explain, right? M Street in Georgetown, sort of the little privileged bubble of Georgetown, where they won't even allow a metro stop. There was a murder on M Street yesterday. There was an altercation, and apparently a guy came back and shot the other person dead. One of two shootings in D.C. yesterday, and Wyatt, who's now downloaded, he lives in D.C., he's downloaded an app to get updates from the city on this stuff. There was just, what, minutes ago, another shooting reported here in Washington. But M Street in Georgetown is pretty shocking. Police described the suspect as a young black male wearing a black jacket and light jeans, urging people who may know anything or to maybe spot this guy to call 911. But here's how the foxnews.com story covers this and describes Georgetown. It's a neighborhood on the waterfront, a tourist destination in a thriving commercial district that sits along the Potomac River, known for its upscale bars, restaurants, and shops. We've got a person shot dead on M Street yesterday in Georgetown. Meanwhile, just across the street from where I sit right now is Union Station. I go there every time I go up to New York on the train. There is now just a homeless camp out front. I mean, am I exaggerating, Wyatt? No, Guy, you're exactly right. It's it's gotten really bad, especially by Union Station. There's tents everywhere. Someone went around and spray-painted or drawed swastikas, drew swastikas all over Union Station with paint or some sort of marker or something, but that Nazi symbol was not just one or two of them. 
they put them everywhere. There's this kind of tent city around Union Station with homeless people. And there are people who get accosted. There have been assaults. And with this all as a backdrop, number one, imagine living in or around Washington, D.C. with some of the statistics plus anecdotes, right? It's both. Because anecdotes don't necessarily show patterns, but when you actually have the stats that back up the anecdotes too, the anecdotes illustrate the problem. Imagine being so secluded and so politicized that you speak on behalf of the White House and you decide the best thing you can do is go on a podcast and make fun of Fox News for covering the crime too much, sort of playing dumb. Whatever do they mean by consequences for being soft on crime? Open your eyes and look around. The American people understand. This is why the Democratic Party is in some trouble. I understand why the White House doesn't really want to talk about it very much because they want to say that they're tough on crime and they're against defunding the police and all that stuff. They also don't want to alienate the left wing base, which demands soft on crime prosecutors because they're terrified of their left flank. So that's the situation that they're stuck in. So the gaslighting solution is blame Fox News for covering a phenomenon that isn't just happening far away in cities that perhaps Jen Psaki doesn't visit very often, but her own home city where she's raising her family. You'd think there might be some more acknowledgement, but no, it's just politics all the way down with this crowd. Oh, and one more thing. The other night I went into D.C. for dinner. I actually met a left-leaning friend of mine who we only knew each other on Twitter and Instagram. We'd never met. We decided to meet up and have a bipartisan summit at a nice time, a few drinks and dinner. And you'll be relieved to know that with Washington, D.C. on fire with crime, carjackings all over the place, shootings, murders, and all of that, I was ID'd, not so I could drink alcohol. I think I look old enough at this point, maybe. I was ID'd to prove that my VAX card was mine. I showed my papers in D.C. so I could have Mexican food. That's what they're enforcing here in D.C. You don't enforce the show me your papers VAX requirements or you betray the indoor mask requirement one too many times. Maybe you'll get your business shut down. Who knows who's out on the street right in front of your business and if they're packing or not. City officials seem less concerned about that, much more concerned about visitors like me proving that we've been vaxxed. And by the way, I haven't been boosted yet because I had COVID. I wonder if they're going to lock me out of restaurants at some point because I'm not boosted yet. Who knows what whim Mayor Bowser is going to have tomorrow? The priorities are just nuts. Remember the slogan, stay, stay home, stay safe because of COVID? I live in Virginia. Maybe I should stay home, stay safe in Virginia. Not because of COVID, but because of D.C. crime. Maybe that's what that slogan now means to me. And Wyatt, in all seriousness, please do stay safe because you've been walking to work and you say it's actually getting kind of frightening and stuff's been happening right outside your building. You're not in a tough neighborhood, although maybe that's changing. Yeah, it's crazy, guy. we got to stay safe. Ugh. All right, we're up on a break. I'm going long. 
I've got a soundbite to play for you from the president coming up. And then the governor of California. Oh, we're back with Gavin Newsom. We talked about him yesterday. There's an update. We'll get to all of it. It's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. Follow us on social media, please, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Well, here's a soundbite from uh, President Biden. It kind of sounds like candidate Biden a little bit. He's back on this. There's one little problem. Let's just play what he said over the weekend first. Cut 19. Let's keep investing in the future of every city and town in this country. Let's face the challenges head on. Let's keep building a better America because it's totally, completely within our power. I promise you, I promise you, it's about time we stop fighting. It's about time we start working together again. First of all, his promise doesn't mean much, does it? I promise you, he says it twice. He promised to get all of our Americans and allies out of Afghanistan before we handed the keys over to the Taliban. He didn't do that. So if he's not going to do that, On the most solemn of promises, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but your pledge, your vow doesn't mean much to a lot of people, I would imagine. But then the very end is my favorite part. It's time to stop fighting. It's time to come together, work together. I'm sorry. Are you, sir, not the same person who was just down in Atlanta a few weeks ago screaming about Bull Connor and Jim Crow and George Wallace and Jefferson Davis? And pledging to fight enemies foreign and domestic. The latter being a reference to domestic opponents of yours who don't want your party to take over the entire election system by killing the filibuster and passing a partisan bill to federalize the elections, which didn't pass. And now you're saying you're not sure if the next election is going to be legitimate. Is that you? Was that you? And now you're calling for unity and working together and stopping with the fighting. Get out of here. That might have had resonance when you were a candidate, when you were getting inaugurated, but we've seen you, sir. We've heard you, sir. It means nothing now coming from you. It's The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We return here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. So yesterday, we opened the show talking about the NFC Championship game. Not so much the game, but some politicians who were there. If you missed it, or just to refresh your memory, there were some photographs that were posted of Magic Johnson, or from Magic Johnson, the NBA great, who was at the game in a luxury suite, and he was posing for photographs with a bunch of people, including 
the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, a Democrat. The mayor of Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti, a Democrat. The mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Breed, a Democrat. And in none of these photos were they wearing masks. Now, we reminded you that SoFi Stadium required masks unless you're actively eating or drinking. And there's an indoor mask mandate in California, thanks to none other than Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, we recall from previous incidents that high-ranking Democrats, including Newsom, don't really care about their own rules. They want to do whatever they want to do. They want to boss you around, and they sort of want you to thank them for it. And their hypocrisy, they recognize as Democrats, doesn't matter. And the people of California, by and large, seem to be fine with it, I guess. Because Gavin Newsom, they had an opportunity to get rid of him, and they decided by 30 points to keep him in charge. So Newsom was photographed with Magic Johnson, and they're all grinning, big smiles, no masks on. It's an indoor stadium and then an indoor luxury suite, but they're maskless watching the football game. And again, these people are all vaxxed, I'm sure. Triple vax, boosted, all the things. But that's not the rule. The rule is mask mandate. Now, I've seen a few people point out that Magic Johnson is in his 60s, He's an African-American, and he is immunocompromised. And yet all these people seemingly had no concern about exposing him potentially to the virus because they tell us, well, we have to wear masks because even people who are vaccinated can spread the disease and therefore wear a mask. That's part of the argument that they make. But here's someone who is not low risk, who is perhaps on some level higher risk. In his 60s, right, they tell us for equity concerns that people who are African-American, it's almost like a pre-existing condition for COVID. That's what if public health officials in places like New York City have baked into their policies. And then the comorbidity issue for Magic, but they're all mask off, taking photos with him because, I mean, is it really a cool photo to have with Magic Johnson if you're wearing a mask? No. So mask is off. Let's take the photo. So we called Governor Newsom out and these other public officials as well. But ultimately, he's the one in charge. He's the guy who's saying, yes, the mask mandate continues indoors throughout California. We pointed out that in that exact same county, this is a Los Angeles home game on Sunday in Los Angeles County, school children now, right now, school children are forced to wear fitted medical masks even outside. There is no science Supporting that none. There's no good science supporting them wearing indoor masks in schools, let alone outdoor, which is crazy. But that's the rule in L.A. Indoor mask mandate throughout the state of California. But the governor, the chief executive. Couldn't be bothered to wear his mask at the football game. And as I said yesterday, if I were at the game, I've done the same thing. No mask. Enjoy my life. But I'm not the one telling other people, including children, that they have to mask for hours a day whenever they're inside. That's Gavin Newsom. So I guess he realized, sort of like his French laundry excursion, when was that? Many months ago at this point. Might have been late 2020, early 21, whenever it was. 
sort of like the trouble that he got in there, he had to say something here. And so he came up with an excuse. And the excuse was a lie. Let's listen to the lie together. This was the damage control late yesterday from Governor Newsom. Cut one. I was very judicious yesterday, uh, very judicious. And you'll see in the photo that I did take um, where Magic was kind enough, generous enough to ask me for a photograph. And in my left hand's the mask, and I took a photo. Um, the rest of the time, I wore it, uh, as we all should. Um, not when I had a glass of water or thing. And I uh, encourage everybody else to do so. And uh, that's it. I was trying to be gracious and took the mask off for a brief second. But uh, no, I encourage people to continue to wear them. Uh huh. So, according to the story, he was very judicious. So, so judicious. Magic Johnson wanted a photograph, so he had the mask, but he took it off just for a minute, just for the photograph. And then he wore it the rest of the time, as we all should. I'm just quoting him here, except when he had a glass of water. So he was, you know, actively eating or drinking. That's fine. Those are the rules. So he was just being gracious. He took it off for just a brief second. That was his quote. Took it off for a brief second. First of all, I'm not sure I, I was going back in the regulations and looking at the executive orders. I didn't see a photograph with celebrity exception to the indoor mask mandate from Governor Newsom. Maybe I missed the fine print somewhere there, Gov. Maybe you can uh, direct us to that. Actively eating or drinking or taking a photo with a celebrity. Although that would actually be a very California rule, would it not? Uh, here's the problem with that and the whole uh, damage control PR effort that we just heard from Governor Newsom, it's not true. And we know it's not true because, I know, imagine this, at a big football game with the NFL playoffs in a sellout crowd, there are a lot of cameras around, including the Fox cameras, because this was a Fox broadcast with Joe Buck, and they were showing some of the celebrities. And wouldn't you know it, there was a quick shot of Magic Johnson getting a big hug from Gavin Newsom, who was walking towards Magic, big smile, big hug, guess what Governor Newsom wasn't wearing on his face in that video? We all know. He was maskless. Of course he was. The way Gavin Newsom would tell the story was, oh, he was scrupulously masked. He had that mask on the whole time. He took it off just for a second, just to be gracious, because Magic desperately wanted a photo with him. I'm sure that's it. And then the mask came right back on, except when he was drinking water. And then here's video proof that he was already unmasked when he approached Magic Johnson and took the photograph. And that's not all. There was the Jumbotron camera that was panning the crowd, and people got some screenshots of that with Gavin Newsom. I know this is good. Please sit down, folks. Sit down, folks. I just I don't want to shock you too badly. If you're driving, please concentrate on the road. Hands at 10 and 2. Focus. Gavin Newsom was at the game in the luxury suite, sitting in his seat, not wearing a mask, without a cup of water or a buffalo wing to be seen. Now, it might seem petty to you for us to spend a second full segment on a second show going like full Zapruder film on Gavin Newsom's face diaper 
or lack thereof. Because frankly, I don't care if people aren't wearing masks at this point because they don't work well. And they're useless, especially cloth masks, useless during Omicron. Some of the fitted N95 things can be better. I'm of the opinion that you should get vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. I think you should get boosted. I have not yet, as I mentioned, because I had actual COVID after being fully vaccinated. It was a very mild case, thankfully, and I'm strongly considering getting the booster next month. Actually, now it's February, so this month. It'll be six months past getting COVID, which was over the summer. Both of my parents are boosted at the behest of me and my siblings. I am very pro-vaccine. And based on the data that we shared with you yesterday that David Leonhardt was broadcasting over at the New York Times, if you are fully vaxxed, you are exceptionally unlikely to die from COVID. I mean, orders of magnitude safer from death and hospitalization due to COVID if you're fully vaccinated. And it gets even better, even safer if you're boosted. We tell you about that all the time. I believe it firmly. But once you've made those decisions for yourself, and in my case, made the decision for myself, I want to go live my life. And what I don't want is someone like Gavin Newsom telling me that I can't and that I have to do all sorts of different things. Or here in D.C., Mayor Bowser saying, oh, no, you want to go out to dinner, show your papers and your I.D. Very racist to ask people for an I.D. to vote, they tell us. But to go to dinner, that's acceptable for some reason. And you've got clown show like Jim Acosta over at another network, CNN, saying that it's Virginia. That is the Soviet style police state where the only place that I have to wear and show my papers is D.C., which is what Acosta was unfavorably comparing Virginia to, which is just sort of mind blowing. Gavin Newsom has the same exact desire, apparently, that I do to go out, enjoy a ball game meet people, take photos, live my life, enjoy the game and do what I want without a mask because he's fully vaccinated and even has that booster shot in the case of Newsom. That's what he wanted to do. That is what he did do. But he is single-handedly requiring people indoors in California to wear masks, and then he's not doing it. He is requiring school children to wear masks for hours a day Some of them outdoors in California required. Even though kids are at a much lower risk threshold for COVID than adults, even vaccinated adults. So he's saying your business could go away. Your fines on your business could be draconian if you don't abide by these rules that I can't be bothered to follow myself because I didn't want to. And so I didn't Except. When he's caught again, when he's caught again flouting his own rules, what does he do? He gets up to the camera and he verifiably lies. He tells us he was super judicial, uh, judicious, that he took the mask off just for a brief second to take a photo. And then he wore it the rest of the time, except when he was drinking, even though we have photographic and video evidence proving that that's not true. And he's got to know that there's that evidence. He's the governor of a huge state at a high-profile event. There's going to be cameras everywhere. I think he knows 
that he's going to be proven to be lying about this, and he doesn't care. He can give both middle fingers to the camera and say, I didn't do it because I didn't want to, but you have to because I'm in charge. Sorry, kids. Sorry, business owners. And what he recognizes is most of the state in deep blue California will say, thank you, sir. May I have another? Can you give us one more middle finger, please, daddy? Don't be California, America. Don't be California. Meanwhile, a few related stories. Out in Denver, Colorado, I guess there's like a little bit of good news here. People will no longer be required to wear masks or show proof of vaccination to enter businesses in Denver starting this Friday. Okay, so that's some progress. They've got a non-totally insane Democratic governor out there. And now Denver's saying, let's ease, ease off on some of these restrictions. But here's the but. The mask requirements will continue in schools and childcare facilities. I swear, it's, it's like they're just, they're trying to push us off the cliff of insanity. The people in society who need the masks least are children. It doesn't work. It doesn't make a difference in schools. Study after study has shown this. We have results from around the world. And now what Denver is doing, and this is very typical of a lot of these blue places and cities like New York and out in California, Chicago, and you go on and on. What these morons who control our lives, what they decide is, you know what, let's start lifting restrictions for adults to make our lives easier. But let's keep the same restrictions that are less justifiable scientifically on the kids. Let's keep that going indefinitely. It's crazy making. It is absolutely crazy making. And these people are the science fetish crowd. That's what gets me every time. Last point. There's a guy who's a like a Democratic operative type in Virginia who goes on Twitter by not Larry Sabato. Larry Sabato is the political scientist who has also gone way off the deep end into leftyville. I mean, he's just come out of the closet as a full-blown, like, progressive reply guy. It's, it's very weird and sort of sad to see from Larry. But this other guy, not Larry Sabato, who's got a bit of a following, Democratic consultant and Democratic operative type dude. Here's what he tweets this last night. My favorite part of the optional masks at schools crowd, meaning me, is that the teachers can identify the dickheads and make sure their grades reflect their caring for others. When I say that the forever restrictions, forever COVID people need to be defeated, need to be broken, this is the type of person that I'm talking about. He is gleefully tweeting, and this is a a prominent lefty in Virginia, He said what he loves about the optional schools crowd is that those people who do show up without a mask on, because the data shows that that's perfectly fine for kids in schools, but he says that the teachers can then use that as a metric for how to grade the kids. He calls kids who don't want to wear masks in schools dickheads, which is, by the way, absolutely a reflection on the parents. So he's sneering at these families who are making a good data-driven decision for themselves, calling them dickheads. And then think about what he believes teachers are. 
He is confident that the teachers of Virginia will be corrupt, vindictive a-holes who will then mark down the kids and not give them a fair shake in their grades because of the mask culture war. What an insight into the thinking of these people. They have to be defeated. From the Gavin Newsom's all the way down to the not Larry Sabato's. Enough. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. We are live. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, if you're a regular listener, I hope you appreciate, and I hope part of the reason that you are a regular listener is that we try to be as accurate as we possibly can here at the show. And therefore, I need to tell you about a fact check. Fox News alert, I got something wrong. And I'm going to fact check myself thanks to a text message from my father during the commercial break. I said in the last segment that my parents are fully vaxxed and boosted at the behest of me and my siblings. He reminded me that my mother is boosted. He is not because he couldn't get a booster slot. He couldn't get an appointment for a booster until just before New Year's. And then he got COVID at Christmas, which, of course, I remember because he was up on our third floor quarantining for all of Christmas. So I'll get my booster probably this month. He's eligible for his booster in June. Just want to be accurate here. The point still stands. All right. Next hour coming up. Joe Concha is going to be here. This Whoopi Goldberg thing. The view's a mess. We've got a lot to get to. Plus, Joe Rogan. That's all straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour underway here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, host of the program here. Thank you for listening. Three to six Eastern every weekday guybensonshow.com g u y b e n s o n show.com at guy benson show on twitter and instagram catch me on special report tonight i'll be joining the panel this evening around 6:40 eastern time fox news channel fox news alert as we begin this middle hour the dow closes up today in the green 273 points ending at 35405 with us now is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, media critic. And Joe, good to have you back here. Hey, Guy. How you been, man? I've been doing well. So let's see. Guest choice. Do you want to start with Whoopi Goldberg and The View, or do you want to start with Joe Rogan? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's quite a choice. Let's go yeah. with Whoopi. I like Whoopi. Okay, well, Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg over at The View. Here's how it all started. They were talking about the Holocaust, what could go wrong. This is on The View yesterday, cut 14. Let's be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. No. No, it's well, not about maybe race. Maybe ethnicity. Yeah, no, it's Jews about a different it's, race. But it's, it's not about race. It's not about well, race. What is it about? Because you, it's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. But it's about white supremacy. It's well, about but it's not, it's not about and ideal and race. It's it's not but these are two Romans. white groups of people. Well, how do we have to black they people see them as white people? And they, but you're missing the point. You're yeah. missing the point. Yeah. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. 
It's a problem. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, because black, white, Jews, uh, it's ha- everybody eats each other. Okay, so she was saying the Holocaust was not about race. Of course, many people did argue, even you could hear them in the background saying actually Jewish people are a race of people. She said, no, that's white people and white people, which I think is a misunderstanding of Jewishness. In fact, I was just having dinner with a Jewish guy the other night, and he was talking about this exact misconception, how it drives him crazy. It sort of discounts the experience of large groups of the Jewish community currently and throughout history. So the headline was Whoopi saying this was not about race. Well, that set off a bit of a firestorm. She went on Colbert last night to kind of clean it up a little bit. Here's part of what she said in Cut 15. I feel being black when we talk about race, it's a very different thing to me. Mm-hmm. So I said that I, I felt that the Holocaust wasn't about race. People were very angry and they said, no, no, we are a race. And I, I, I understand. I understand. I, I felt differently. She felt differently, but now she understands. And then she finally sort of landed the plane on the apology today on The View. Cut 16. While discussing how a Tennessee school board unanimously unanimously voted to remove a graphic novel about the Holocaust, I said that the Holocaust wasn't about race and it was instead about man's inhumanity to man. But it is indeed about race because Hitler and the Nazis considered Jews to be an inferior race. Now, words matter, and mine are no exception. I regret my comments, as I said, and I stand corrected. I also stand with the Jewish people, as they know, and y'all know, because I've always done that. Okay, so Joe, what do you make of this? It seems like a little bit of a flare-up. She also put out a statement, which was pretty unequivocal apology. I don't really have a problem with the apology, but some people, it seems like, are now agitating for her to get fired. What's the latest here? Well, Whoopi Goldberg, guys, she resigned a new contract, fresh new contract with ABC uh, a few months ago, and it's a four-year deal that takes her through 20, let's see, it's season 28, they're in season 25, so a couple of years, and it goes into the seven-figure range. So, I hate to say it, but there is a business aspect to this. And when someone inks a deal like that and you're only a couple months out from it, it takes a lot to get you fired in these situations. And I think if Whoopi was in serious trouble, then she wouldn't have been back. They wouldn't have allowed her to go on Colbert last night. That's certainly for sure, uh, where she did a late-night appearance and kind of made things worse on some level. And then, obviously, today she's back on the air. She did the full-throated apology, put into the teleprompter. And it appears that she'll survive at this point. I'm sure some staffers are upset. Obviously, a lot of people upset that she makes this argument about it not being about race, which was Hitler's entire argument that it was about race. Germanic people, a superior, Jews inferior, therefore six million need to be eliminated. Uh, it, one of the most insipid things you'll ever hear on an insipid show in your life, uh, but she'll survive it because she roots for the right team, so to speak, ideologically. Does that make sense? It, it does. I also feel like she made a mistake. She had a misunderstanding. I, I don't think that I understand that she's paid what sounds like, what, uh, millions of dollars to opine on things on national television on a regular basis. And she often seems to know very little about things, including some of the statements she's made recently about COVID. That's a separate issue. I don't have a problem with her getting something wrong 
getting educated about why it was wrong and then issuing an apology explaining why she was wrong and saying I'm sorry. Like I think there should be more of that kind of thing. I think it's wrong for people to be pushing for her to be fired. I don't like cancel culture. I don't like this type of thing where someone who you don't agree with a lot of the time or has in fact in her case been very not generous and unkind to people on the other side when they step in it. I understand sort of the instinct for comeuppance and retribution. I just don't think it's a great game to play, and I don't think she should be fired. I think people should accept the apology and move on. My bigger concern, Joe, is that some people get that benefit of the doubt and other people do not, and sometimes it seems to come down to ideological tribe. And to your point, she's on the right tribe and a part of the correct tribe, and so this is the type of thing that won't get her canceled, whereas other people who are in the wrong think tribe, there's a bunch of people you know, on hair trigger alert trying to cancel all of us all the time, and there's not a lot of mercy uh, or grace shown to those folks. And I think that is a double standard that's worth talking about. Oh, completely. I mean, I always think, Guy, what if Joe Rogan said this, right? And <laughs> because everything well, that Joe Rogan is saying these days is under a serious, serious microscope, as if he's Walter Cronkite and he's giving you the evening news on a nightly basis, right? Uh, when he's a guy having a conversation who's admittedly, uh, to his own admission, I should say, says he gets things wrong and he talks to people and he's curious and he's, he just wants to explore all angles and welcomes all perspectives. Uh, I, I don't really listen to Rogan, to be honest with you. I don't really listen to podcasts in general outside of this show, which isn't a podcast. It's a radio show, right? And, and a few others that the fail a guy is pretty good before you. Uh, but, but overall... And we will point out, yes, this is a national radio show that becomes a free podcast every day on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. But you, yes, you, thank you. You've said that before. I, I feel there's, some, there's uh, definitely some repetitions there. Uh, but yeah, uh, well, so well done. Uh, but yeah, again, it just goes back to it's Whoopi, it's The View, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to see the soaring editorials in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Forget Joe Rogan. Let's say Tucker Carlson said something like this. Then the, the, the world, it would be the apocalypse. Like, it, the, the Internet would melt into a little ball like at the end of Poltergeist. It would just be horrible. So it, it depends on the letter next to your name, so to speak. And since Whoopi has that big D next to it, then she gets off from this. That, that's the way it works. Let's talk just briefly a bit more about The View. Then we'll move on to Rogan, who you've just name-checked here. They are currently searching for a right-leaning co-host, and it seems like they are snagged. They haven't found someone, and I don't watch the show on a regular basis. I do see clips. Some stuff that happens on that show is just bananas all the time, like when the Chicago teachers were on strike for no reason and kids were locked out of school again with no science, and there was a giant fight with the Democratic mayor of that city. Every single person on the set at The View was on the side of the teachers' union, which is like the opposite of public opinion, but that's how cloistered they are at The View. And the conservative, quote-unquote, on set that day was Ana Navarro, who's just a Democratic operative. I know, I guess today or this week, they've got Tara Setmeyer. I know her a little bit. We've always had a good experience back and forth when we've met, but, I mean, she's like a Lincoln Project anti-Republican person. It just seems like in their search for a conservative they aren't looking that hard because there's plenty of capable female conservatives out there. I can name a few off the top of my head that would fit the bill. I just don't know if that's what they really want. They're still traumatized from having Meghan McCain disagree with them on a regular day, on a regular basis. 
that's the thing. They're having such trouble, guy, in, in filling that Megan McCain spot. And and you put on Tara like they did today. She's part of the Lincoln Project, right? You you can't be any more anti-Trump, anti-conservative, anti-whatever than than the Lincoln Project. They literally support. Well, they're Democrats. They're Democrats, right? Exactly. They, they could say they're you know uh, who's who's the one guy Wilson, right? Who who keeps saying that? Oh well, you know he's a Republican strategist, uh huh. Or or uh, you know George Conway, or you could go down no, the th- list. Their mission is to elect Democrats and to defeat every Republican. So I mean, that their, speaks for itself. Their mission is to raise as much money as possible to line their pockets. Go look at Steve Schmidt's well, kitchen I mean, on TV yes. sometime. Yeah, thank right, you, exactly. thank you, and, and covering up some sordid stuff from certain members who get into scandal. Yes. So they sure. they their stated mission. Their stated mission for the dum-dums who give the money is to defeat all the Republicans and help elect Democrats. So to have someone representing the right from that group seems to be because they what do they say? Representation is important. Uh, not so much, apparently. No. Ideologically. Well, look, look at who else they have on there. Uh, Anna Navarro, right? Republican strategist. Uh huh. <laughs> she literally did a fundraiser for Joe Biden. Uh, I could go on and on, but I just don't know why they they're so afraid to put a truly strong conservative woman in there. I would pay big money just for one day, just one. Put Megyn Kelly in that that spot, and 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 just watch the carnage. <laughs> if it was somebody who could make you know a good, logical, strong argument and, and doesn't back down, or I, I could name it, several other. And people. Meg, I don't even know Megan if she's like. A right winger. She certainly is more conservative than any of the people on that show. She's also sharp as a tack. I mean, she would mop the floor with them, and I think that's part of the reason they want no part of her. Oh, but precisely. I mean, that's the thing. Megan isn't uh, right wing. She is uh, part of the pragmatic party, right? She, she just makes a common sense argument. But they're even afraid to put somebody in there like that. And that's why the views become irrelevant, except for today, where we're talking about it because Whoopi Goldberg said something decidedly and utterly tone deaf. Uh, and, and then that's where we are at this point. And the ratings are, are suffering big time, uh, more more than you would expect. So uh, it's well, not the days I mean, of Barbara I think Walters anymore. The, the audience would like at least some representation of half the country, and they don't have that. And they're looking around like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? How can we find this magical unicorn? Uh, there are you mentioned one, Mary Catherine Ham. I mean, there, there's a whole list that I think would do a nice job. But they're, you know, they're doing what they do over there. Meanwhile, we've got Joe Rogan, where I mean, I don't understand this national moral panic. It seemed like it came out of nowhere. Joe Rogan has had people on who have said things about the vaccine that are very controversial. We're very pro-vaccine on this show. We were just talking about it in the last hour. I don't listen to Joe Rogan. He seems like an interesting guy. The video that he just put out sort of defending himself I thought was really well done. He made an important point about so-called misinformation and the people who make those decisions and who decide what counts as misinformation. They've gotten some big things wrong. You might even call it misinformation recently in particular. I thought it was a very thoughtful response. It sort of spoke to me and it it helped inform me why he's so popular with so many people. There's like a a generosity of spirit and just like a normalcy about him. He does seem genuinely curious, but you have people just lighting their hair on fire about the existence of this show, going after advertisers now. I saw journalism professors out there trying to – you know, get get boycotts going against the advertisers. You've got Neil Young and company saying it's either us or Rogan on Spotify. I just don't understand why we can't allow a successful podcast to happen where conversations occur that sometimes some people may find offensive. Like it just we're a, we're a baby nation filled with babies. 
<laughs> I think it was, uh, this is before your time, I think I'm a little older than you guys, just a little. Uh, Phil Graham, who is the senator of Texas forever, and he said during the 90s that we live in a country of whiners and just got killed for it. And it's like, you know what? He was pretty prophetic on that because we are a nation of whiners, that we are just so, I think social media amplifies it, right? Maybe we've always been this way, but we haven't had the ability to have this megaphone in order to share every inane thought and feeling and sensitivity that goes through our veins and it goes out in the social media and somehow if something goes viral then that's supposed to uh, be representative of the entire thought process of the country and it's not and that's why the woke mob I was telling Will Kane this over the weekend it's an illusion that when this big protest is going on or this big boycott if I am a corporation or a company I stand firm and I do not even address these sort of things because it's not real it's not real just Twitter is not real life yet we, we treat it like it yeah, is it's, it's outrage so is not the weird. outrage we think it is yeah go ahead I'm sorry yeah it's just like a fun funhouse mirrors all over the place, but a lot of people get deceived by it, and people panic, and these decision makers and companies wet themselves. I mean, look, the idea that you might hear someone's music on Spotify, and because Spotify also has Joe Rogan, you assume that the person who sang the song might have a problem with vaccines or something like it. Just it makes no sense. It's like when people come after me, trying to hold me accountable for things that anyone on our network says ever, like. Like, I'm responsible for everything that goes on the air. We're all responsible for our own performance and saying what we believe on the air. And it's it's not like this whole, like, group guilt by association or will you condemn this person. It's just exhausting, Joe. Last word to you quickly. It's exhausting. <laughs> That's my last word. And maybe all right. we just all got to get agree. off Twitter because I'm, I'm fatigued, man. I'm worn out. Got to go. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to watch it. Just enough with the whistleblowing and the punishment and all of it. I think most of us are tired of it, but it's perhaps a silent majority. But we should be less silent about it. And I think the Rogan controversy is just the latest in a long line of this stuff. we got to leave it there with another Joe. Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, The Hill columnist. Joe, appreciate it. All right, man. You have a good one. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. On Friday, we had Bill Malusian here. Yesterday, Byron York. And we were talking about the Biden border crisis, which in some ways keeps getting worse. And I just want to underscore one statistic that our colleague Griff Jenkins tweeted. That in December, nearly 45% of all the migrants who were captured, who were encountered at the southern border, nearly 45% of those apprehended came not from Mexico and not from any of the northern triangle countries. So getting kind of in the ballpark of half are coming from countries other than Central America and Mexico. And this includes 84 different nations represented in October, November, and December. Countless languages, 84 countries. Uzbekistan was represented. Syria, just the other day we reported from Bill Malugin, five Syrians apprehended at the border. Why do I bring this up? Because... What do we hear from the Biden administration? Oh, root causes. We need to address root causes. That's why we're sending Vice President Harris down to Guatemala 
to talk about the root causes on the ground there. We can't do this with 84 countries. You send VP to Tashkent. That's a deep poll. Capital of Uzbekistan. Or Damascus. Probably don't want to send her there. How about secure the border, defend our sovereignty, and drop this ludicrous, insulting talking point about root causes? The data doesn't even back it up. Not even close. All right, my favorite story of the week by far. We'll tell you about it next. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We continue on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, the website. Podcast always free. All right, this is my favorite story, I think, of the week. And it comes from NBC News. And you can file this very much prominently in the Dems in Disarray category. And this one I find particularly delicious. There's some enjoyable ironies and comeuppance here. Here's the headline from NBC. DNC chair Jamie Harrison has considered early exit amid White House tensions. More than two dozen sources describe simmering frustrations on both sides, just as Democrats are gearing up for the midterms. So very much Dems and disarray vibes already. Here's the story. Democratic National Committee Chairman Jamie Harrison is frustrated, isolated, and trapped in a job he long thought he wanted, according to party insiders, a dynamic driven by escalating tensions with the White House over his role. Key decisions for the committee are made by the White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who speaks frequently with other DNC officials, but only about three times a month by Zoom with Harrison. The limits of his influence are a source of agitation for Harrison, according to several people who have spoken with him. At the same time, he's not flying to meet with donors or visiting DNC headquarters. Instead, since he took the post a year ago, Harrison has mostly stayed in his home state of South Carolina, according to people familiar with his schedule, as well as people who frequently see him around town. This has been a major point of consternation for the White House. And neither the White House nor Harrison have come up with a cohesive strategy to help President Joe Biden rebound from abysmal approval ratings. Story goes on. Harrison has been frustrated enough to consider an escape route to depart before the midterms when Republicans are expected to make gains in Congress, according to two people with knowledge of the situation. But Harrison, who has long had his eye on running for Congress, can't make any move that would be perceived as harmful to the party or the president. Oh, gosh, do you think the chairman of the party leaving after like a year and a half in the middle of an election year where they're expected to get waxed with an unpopular president and the party trailing on the generic ballot all over the country, him leaving the job after less than two years in an election year, would that reflect badly on the president and the party? The fact that he's even thinking about it and telling people that he's thinking about it or pining, yearning for the ability to pull the ripcord or find an escape hatch somewhere, I think that's extraordinary. He signed up for the job. He sought out this job. Now he wants out. He's saying on the record that it's still his goal to serve out a four-year term, which is one of those political wiggle words. Oh, yes, that remains my goal. Uh Uh-huh. Now, here's what's interesting. You might be wondering, why is this relationship between the DNC chairman and the Democratic White House so strained? 
What's the problem here? The problem is the guy isn't doing his job. Why isn't he doing his job? Because if you're party chairman, you have to be kind of everywhere. You're ubiquitous. You're out on the trail. You're hobnobbing with the top donors in the party. You're going to fundraisers and other events. You're rallying the troops. You're visiting grassroots activists. You're coordinating with people. There's a lot that goes into being the party chair. Jamie Harrison, the DNC chair, isn't doing those things. And the reason why he's not doing those things is absolutely hilarious. NBC continues. Harrison assumed a role that necessitates high energy, constant phone calls, video sessions, and travel. But he has instead rendered himself nearly irrelevant by rarely leaving his hometown, more than a dozen sources said. Several sources close to Harrison say he's complained about being cut out of tasks or briefings that previous DNC chairs may have viewed as more operational and would have delegated. His decision to stay closer to home has been a source of frustration to the White House, which would prefer him to have a much more public-facing role. But citing COVID and his young kids, he isn't flying cross-country to Los Angeles or to New York to woo donors, the sources say. He's also not spending time at DNC headquarters in Washington, which is open to staff on a voluntary basis where visits could help boost morale. The criticism presents a certain irony. The same Biden operation that was criticized in 2020 for not letting its chief principal travel enough is now criticizing the frequency of travel of another chief principal within the party. Harrison's sensitivity to protecting himself and his family from the virus was on display during the 2020 campaign. In a debate with Senator Lindsey Graham, he brought a plexiglass divider to separate himself from his adversary. At the time, he said he wanted to ensure the safety of his wife, his children, and the grandmother who helped raise them. So what we have here is a DNC chairman who has been hunkered down in his hometown in South Carolina for the better part of two years, certainly since he took the gig, because he's a COVID fanatic. He's one of the COVID people who is terrified out of his mind in a totally outsized way that's completely irrational. He's 44 years old. He seems to be a healthy young man. I would bet money that he is double vaxxed and boosted. But he's afraid to fly because of COVID. He doesn't want to travel due to COVID. He wants to protect his children from COVID. His kids are going to be fine from COVID, like kids are fine from COVID. But he apparently doesn't internalize or believe these things. And so he has been at Fortress DNC at his house, basically. He hasn't been to DNC headquarters. He's not meeting with donors. He's not coming to Washington. He's not jet-setting around the country. It's part of the job. But because of COVID, he's not doing it. How appropriate, how wonderful is it that the COVID panic party that has fed fear and had all these clashing messages on COVID for so long that they are now hamstrung with a leader who believes the hype and therefore is doing like the stay home, stay safe thing in 2022. And how wonderfully delicious is it that the Biden White House is mad at him because of it? Now, this is a guy who became DNC chair because he raised more than $100 million when he ran against Lindsey Graham in 2020 for Senate in a very red state. 
He raised $100 million from a bunch of delusional lefties who hate Lindsey Graham, and they all whip themselves up into a frenzy on social media and on Twitter, convincing themselves that Lindsey Graham can be beaten. Lindsey Graham won by 10 points. It was not close. Jamie Harrison convinced a bunch of people that it was close. He separated liberals from 100 million of their dollars, and then he lost by double digits. In a state, by the way, where Joe Biden didn't campaign at all. Biden didn't spend money. Biden didn't campaign in South Carolina. And Jamie Harrison, with that $100 million war chest, outperformed Joe Biden in South Carolina by about one half of one percentage point. And the party said, oh, that's exciting. Let's make him boss of the party. Let's make him chairman of the party. Here's a young man of color. They're checking a lot of boxes here. He can raise a lot of money. He almost got Lindsey Graham, even though he didn't. Let's put him in charge of the party. And now he's being cut out of the loop because he can't or won't do the job because he's too afraid of COVID as a healthy 44-year-old who's freaked out about his kids in COVID. And so they're locked in this position where they can't get rid of him because he's sort of just doing the Fauci thing, right? He's kind of following the most intense, most draconian CDC guidance available. He's taking Fauciist caution to its logical, if extreme, conclusion. So to throw him overboard for that, even though he's not really doing the job, I think that would create some sort of an optics problem for them. Also to jettison a young man of color that way, I think is not what the White House wants to do. So for political reasons, they can't get rid of him. And for political reasons, he can't quit in an election year because that would look awful. And a lot of it comes down to COVID paranoia. It is just a perfect story. I love this story so much. It's just a microcosm of so many things. And this is what the Democrats have done to themselves. And the thing is, we just told you about the poll yesterday. Monmouth asked the American people, is it time to acknowledge that COVID is here to stay and live our lives or not? And it was 70-30, yes. But those 30, that 30 percent, is overrepresented in the hardcore Democratic base, especially the hyper, very online Democratic base. And Jamie Harrison is sort of very representative of what that hardcore, very online base wants. And his approach resonates with them. It just doesn't resonate with the White House that would like him out and about. I guess they want him to go to Virginia for Terry McAuliffe. He wouldn't. He couldn't. So they're upset about that, but they can't say it too loudly, so they're whispering to NBC News. And the tensions are simmering. It's just fantastic stuff. Meanwhile, a companion piece, if you will, from the Washington Post. White House frustrations grow over health chief Becerra's handling of the pandemic. Critics blame him for health officials' conflicting messages. Defenders say administration gave him an unclear role. Did I mention this was the Dems in disarray segment? White House officials, this is the Washington Post, White House officials have grown so frustrated with top health official Javier Becerra as the pandemic rages on that they have openly mused about who might be better in the job, although political considerations have stopped them from taking steps to replace him, officials involved in the decision said. Top White House officials say they have an uneasy relationship with Becerra, the Health and Human Services Secretary, and have since early in President Biden's term. Their dissatisfaction has escalated in recent months as the Omicron variant sickened millions of Americans in a fifth pandemic wave amid confusing and sometimes conflicting messages from top health officials. 
They say the health secretary isn't fulfilling a core responsibility of his job, which is to act as a de facto field marshal coordinating messaging. They say the tension between Becerra and the White House has complicated the pandemic response at a time when Americans are already exhausted and struggling to make sense of ever-changing guidelines. Then you've got quotes from the Becerra camp saying, they never gave me a role. They've sort of put me out to pasture. I've been floating around, paraphrasing. They haven't told me what to do. So you've got the White House very angry at the DNC chairman. You've got the White House very angry at the health secretary in the middle of a pandemic. Can we just talk about this for a second? It took Biden a year to nominate an FDA chief, Food and Drug Administration chief, someone to lead the agency that has been front and center in the pandemic. Biden didn't nominate anyone month after month after month after month who he did nominate for his health secretary was Javier Becerra, who is a sharp-elbowed, left-wing, Democrat hack lawyer. He was attorney general in California, best known for suing conservative organizations, persecuting pro-lifers and that sort of thing. He had no experience in the public health space. He was a lawyer. He was a congressman and a lawyer and an attorney general, not a health expert. But they wanted what they would call a Latinx person to be part of the kaleidoscope of diversity in the Biden administration. So they put someone who is not qualified in this case in as health secretary during a global pandemic that had killed already at that point hundreds of thousands of Americans. And it was about diversity, not resume, not experience, not qualifications. Becerra was clearly unqualified. But this was an identity politics move. And that's one of the other reasons, same identity politics consideration, that they can't get rid of him. He should have never been picked for this position in the first place. How do you put an unqualified person with no health experience as your health secretary in a pandemic? That's what the cranky old white guy, Joe Biden, decided to do. What a brilliant move. And now, shock of all shocks, this guy isn't doing his job properly because he can't. He doesn't know what he's doing. In this case, it's not even his fault. He was wholly unqualified for the gig. Now he's not doing the gig well, and the White House is out there complaining and bad-mouthing the guy. Well, whose fault is that? Anonymous sources. Could it be the president who is more interested in checking some boxes on diversity than actually getting people in a position who know what they're doing, especially with this portfolio in a pandemic? You mean to tell me there's no person of color that couldn't have done this job? who actually knows what they were doing. What the hell kind of decision-making was this? I mean, how's Kamala Harris doing with her box-checking selection? How's that going? How's it going over at the DNC? The guy won't leave his house. How's it going with the health secretary in a pandemic where they're trashing him in the media, but they can't get rid of him because of considerations, political considerations. We know what some of those considerations are. Throwing your health secretary overboard for being incompetent and a no-show. They're saying that he's kind of like a ghost. He's nowhere to be seen. Maybe that's for the best, honestly. Maybe it's for the best that someone who has no expertise isn't taking an outsized role, isn't taking on too much since he doesn't know what he's doing. But they can't get rid of him because of these political considerations. These are the adults. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And you might say, well, Guy, you're criticizing a woman of color in Kamala Harris. You're criticizing the young man of color in Jamie Harrison. You're criticizing the Latinx health secretary 
No, the number one criticism in this segment is of the man who at least ostensibly made all of these decisions, the man in charge, the man who was elected, the oldest, whitest man that you can imagine, Joe Biden, the president. The buck stops with him. He decided to govern for left-wing Twitter and activists, and this is what we're getting. And while I've said I think he will likely pick someone who is well-qualified for the Supreme Court, you might get a sense why people aren't thrilled with the idea of starting with diversity considerations and then going from there. How about starting with qualifications and going from there? Because there are lots of extremely talented, qualified people of color who could be diverse. Joe Biden has not done a great job of identifying that talent and putting it where it needs to go. And the examples I have just given, I think, would be exhibits A, B, and C. You can disagree, but I think the results and the leak wars and the hatchet jobs and the knifing in the back, it all kind of speaks for itself at this stage. We're just noticing. By the way, who's behind all of this? Where are these leaks coming from? I have a theory. I have a prime suspect. We'll tell you who that is when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, right before the break, I said, I think I have a suspect in who is shiving these people left and right. The DNC chairman in that hit piece at NBC, the health secretary, Javier Becerra, with the Washington Post in that story. It might be the same guy who Senator Dick Durbin says was probably the source, by inference, of the leak on Justice Breyer's planned retirement announcement. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, who is on Twitter more than anyone that I know. He was on Twitter more than Trump seemed to be on Twitter back in his heyday. That guy's like retweet is smashing the retweet button on Jen Rubin 24-7. That's where he gets his giggles, apparently. That's the chief of staff at the White House. And I guess he was telling people on Capitol Hill about Breyer before it came out, and then it leaked. So that would seem like maybe Ron Klain was part of that genius move. And with the White House really fumbling along and struggling badly, it would make sense that the guy running the show might want to find some scapegoats. Oh, we're not to blame. It's not me. It's not the president. Look at the health secretary. What a bad job he's doing. Look at the DNC chairman. He won't leave his house. That's my guess, Ron Klain. And when they're blaming each other and pointing fingers in an election year, usually that doesn't end well for the party with all the infighting. Usually. We'll see. Final hour of the show coming up. Bill Hemmer. When we come back, you don't want to miss that conversation. It's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour time on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Monday through Friday. Always grateful to have you along. If you can't catch us live, well, there's always a podcast option. It is on demand. It is free around the clock. GuyBensonShow.com. This hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is really good. As I mentioned yesterday, we had some over the weekend. Why not? We encourage you to try it if you haven't already. Let us know what you think. We've heard from so many listeners who love the long drink. 
TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where it's sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight. Part of the panel with Katie Pavlich and Juan Williams. Jillian Turner is in for Brett this evening. Looking forward to that. See you in the 6 p.m. hour coming up. That's about an hour and a half from right now on Fox News Channel. With us once again is our friend and colleague Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 Eastern AM, of course, on Fox News Channel. Also host of the podcast Hammer Time, available at foxnewspodcasts.com. And most importantly these days, he is a hardcore, lifelong Cincinnati Bengals fan. And he is one of the happiest people I would imagine in the world right now, given what happened on Sunday. Bill, welcome back to the show, and congratulations on your Bengals. Hey, thank you, Guy. I appreciate that. I, I've been on the greatest NFL road show for the past month. Went home for the Raiders game, went to Nashville, the Titans game, and Kansas City this past weekend. So it's been a lot of fun. And you're right to say what you said about the Bengals, because when you're a Bengals fan, you don't you don't ever get off the wagon, no matter how bad the wheels look, <laughs> okay? You and the wheels have looked bad. For, you don't go shopping for a team to, you know, you don't draft the New England Patriots and Tom Brady. No, you stay loyal. And that's, that's what we've done for 30 years, Guy. All right, so I've got a couple questions for you about Cincinnati and the Bengals and your fandom. Let's start with this, since you're talking about a lot of the hard dying that Bengals Nation has done among the diehards. There's been a lot of hard dying. You alluded to that. Was there a low moment in your mind where you at least had a flicker of doubt saying, maybe I shouldn't bother with this franchise anymore? Was there a point that today you look back on and say, I'm glad I stuck with this despite that, whatever happened? Yeah, you're exactly great question. 2015 playoffs against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, this is a team that for the starting in the early 90s would be able to find imaginative ways to lose every conceivable way possible. Guy, even you being a sports <laughs> fan, you couldn't, you couldn't even expand your imagination to think about ways they could screw it up. But there was a playoff game in Cincinnati. Uh, there was a linebacker who was a great player, short career, Vontez Perfect. The league hated him, but we loved him because he could play football. And he picked off Ben Roethlisberger. I think there were two minutes left in the game. The game's over, right? We run a little off-tackle play to Jeremy Hill, and he fumbles. Mm. All right, so now Pittsburgh's got the ball back. That wasn't the end of it, guy. No, Roethlisberger had to throw a pass over the middle, and perfect got called for a personal foul, so... They marched down the field. I think there were two personal fouls on that drive. They kicked the field going and it's over, and it was, that was six years ago. And that, 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 is, uh, that, that is dreadful when you're a fan. <laughs> the specificity of that memory, I think, speaks to how it is seared on your psyche as a Bengals fan. <laughs> and yet, here we are. It's 2022. You've been on, as you call it, the road show. You've been following your Bengals home and away. And be honest, Bill. You were at the game in Kansas City. Was there a moment where you were like, here we go again, and perhaps you lost some faith because it wasn't looking so hot for your Bengals, especially in that first half? 
first half, I thought there was a chance it was going to be 41-14. <laughs> I agree with you. Second half's a different thing. I mean, look, this team hasn't made adjustments at halftime in 30 years that were effective guy. And now we're doing it every week. I mean, really, it's a special group of folks, uh, coaches and players. And I'm so happy for the owners as well. The Brown family, the Blackburns, they have hung in there on that. Was there a I mean, moment? Yeah. I mean, in that second half, you know, Eli Apple had a chance to pick off that pass by, uh, by Mahomes. Um, all the Chiefs fans thought that Corey, uh, that um, uh, we would fumble the ball uh, on our own 15-yard line because the play did not stop. And I thought, are they going to go to a replay on this? And, oh my gosh! Uh, but it did not happen. And I just, there were a different group of guys. But here's one, here's one thing I want you to understand, guy, about me. Okay, I am wondering why am I so happy? Why am I? floating on cloud nine. Why is this? I'm a 57-year-old man. I'm not supposed to act this way. And the, yes, you are. And I've, conc- I've concluded that when I was growing up, my baseball team was the big red machine. Arguably one of the two best teams that has ever played the entire sport of baseball. My football team was owned and run and coached by Paul Brown, the Hall of Fame legend. And he had the Bengals as a franchise team in the playoffs a couple years after they started. Then throughout the 1980s, they were a very good competitive team that lost two Super Bowls. And since then, Guy, it's been goose eggs. So I grew up thinking that winning is always around you. And what you realize over time is that it's Mm -hmm. not. And when lightning strikes, you better be there to see it when it hits. Yeah, that's the thing, Bill. And you don't have to apologize for feeling great. This is what sports is about. It can bring immense frustration sometimes, but also genuine joy. I mean, I grew up in the New York area from fourth grade through high school. And just think about how spoiled I was as a Yankees fan and a New York Giants fan and a New Jersey Devils fan. I mean, just championships all over the place constantly. Mm. And it's been a dry spell ever since. Northwestern, I'm a Northwestern grad, huge football, basketball fan. Basketball has been one of the worst programs in the history of NCAA Division I basketball. They finally made the NCAA tournament for the first time ever in 2016, 2017. I cried when we got into the tournament. I was so happy. I dropped everything and flew to Salt Lake City, one of the best weekends of my life, because I just told myself – I am going. I have no idea if they'll ever be back. Never said, oh, we'll be back. Look at the coach. Look at the team. A new building. They're putting in a new arena. You'll be back. We have not been back since. We haven't been close since. I went because that was the moment to seize onto and enjoy. And I've never regretted that. And it sounds like you're on your special sort of tour at the moment to soak in in person every moment of this magical Bengals season, which is pretty improbable, Bill. I mean, look. Everyone knows Burrow's a winner, but I don't think anyone having watched the last couple seasons would have imagined the Bengals in the Super Bowl at the onset of this season. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and winning two playoff games on the road along the way. Right. If if you're able to be successful in 13 days, you win the third one on the road for sure. Um, In L.A., knowing the Rams are the home team. Look, I... I think there are only two words that should be spoken in that city for the next 13 days, and that is, I think those two words should be one more. Um, I, I feel I, I feel strongly about exactly what you just said, because you don't know, and you can play for next season, but you never know what's going to be around next season. You know, look, look, look at what we look at what we saw today, guy. Tom freaking Brady. Retired.
retires after 22 years. Mm. He won the Super Bowl seven times. <laughs> he competed crazy. for it for more times after that. My boss, Jay Wallace, grew up in southern New Hampshire, and he's been a New England Patriots fan his whole life. And when Brady came into that team, he was the magic that they had always been looking for. I was like, Jay, look at all the success you've had. 20 years. I'm exhausted after a month of chasing it. How'd you do it? (laughs) You can get used to it. Yeah, well, he said that he always, uh, I determined, I said, you always thought you had a chance, didn't you? He said, every time, in every game, we always thought we had a chance because of Brady. Well, he was right. I mean, undoubtedly they did. He's the greatest of all time for good reason. And we've been talking about his rumored retirement yesterday. And we will continue to talk about his confirmed retirement today because he finally decided to make it official in some public statements. But, Bill, back to the Bengals just for a second here. I wonder if you shared this same intuition because sometimes – and apologies to any listeners who aren't sports fans. Like, it's the NFL. This is football. It's America. Like, deal with it. I'm watching your game at Cincinnati. They're scoring seemingly at will. The Chiefs are. They're at home. Crowds whipped up into a lather. That play seems – Super loud and intimidating. Just watching on TV. You were there. You could speak to it in a second here. But at the very end of the first half, you remember it as well as I do, of course, it looked like the Chiefs were going to score again or at least put up a field goal and increase their lead, stretch it a little bit. And then they just sort of dropped the ball and screwed up their clock management and ended up empty on that possession. And I just had an inkling as a sports fan. And sometimes maybe you have confirmation bias and you forget all the times you had an inkling and it didn't happen. But this one, I said, you know, that could be the type of play, the type of series that could come back to haunt the Chiefs. And it just, for some reason, cosmically, in my mind, gave the Bengals a new lease on life. And then, my goodness, that second half, that performance, that's exactly what they did. They exploited the mistake. They stormed back and they won. Did you, sitting in the stadium, identify that moment as a possible turning point at the time or is that maybe some revisionism on my part? I, no, I, uh, there's a great observation you made there, right, by the way. I thought what Mahomes was trying to do was hit, hit his tight end on a, quick, on a quick pattern in the end zone because they only had five seconds on the clock. And for whatever reason, that, that option was not available. Mahomes should have thrown the ball away, I agree with you. But instead, you know, he takes a chance to throw it out to the flat, and they paid for it. Uh, look, wh- he had just gone down the field. I don't think they had punted yet in the game at that point. He had just gone down the field three times in a row and hit hit a receiver in the back right corner of the end zone three times in a row. And I guess to stop them there was like, okay, all right, at least we got this. I had a right. niece sitting three seats down from me, and she said, it's okay. It's okay. We got this. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, not so sure. We don't got this. But, but they have been a very interesting second-half team. And I just – you know what? I, I tell you, Guy, if, if you love football, and I apologize, too, to your listeners who are not into this kind of conversation, but I just it's think fun. there are so many lessons that we learn from games like these. There are three great pieces out there. I'll just give you one, okay? It was written by a guy by the name of Charlie Goldsmith. It was out about 10 days ago in the Cincinnati Inquirer at Cincinnati.com. And it was about the COVID draft of 2020. How they were able to draft seven stud players – 
who all made the team or are all playing on the team. Most of them are starters on the team. Joe Burrow's one of them. T. Higgins is another one from Clemson. How they were able to find these guys, stay in contact with them, watch their progress during a pandemic, and have the guts to draft them. It is, it's called the virtual draft, and it is, I'll send it to you when we get off the air here. If you love football, you have to really understand what this coaching staff and their talent scouts were doing all over the country to try and make their team better. Oh, and here they are, and they're up against the Rams, which went all in on this season. They are pulling everything that they can out of the hat, out of the bag of tricks, to win the championship this year. They are hosting the Super Bowl at their home stadium. You guys are going to come in from Cincinnati. So last two questions back-to-back. Am I right to assume that you will be at SoFi Stadium? I can't imagine you would want to be anywhere else in the world. I was so happy for you when you won in Kansas City. I'm like, there's no way Hammer's not going to the Super Bowl. So are you going to be there, number one? And number two, what do you make of the matchup? How confident are you? Can they do it again? One more. Yeah. Got you. Two great questions. I am going to the Super Bowl. I happen to be a Super Bowl freak. I've gone to probably 20 Super Bowls. I love Whoa. it. I think it's America's greatest single event that we do every year, and it's always so much fun. You know why, Guy? Because everybody walking in that stadium at the beginning of the game is happy. I, I love that emotion. As for the game itself, I think our weakest component has been our offensive line. I think their strongest component is their defensive front. That's where the game will be won and lost. Can we beat them? Sure. But we've got to play the game. And I think this team has been through a lot. And I, th- I think what you recognize, if you saw this in the Chiefs game, is how hard they played in that second half. And the reason they do that is because their quarterback had his legs split in two just about a year ago. And he came back to be there this year. And they know that he does not respect them unless they are playing lights out. And for Cincinnati, that's what it comes down to, effort on the field. Uh, look, Bill, I'll be rooting for the Bengals. They've never won a Super Bowl. They've been to a couple, never won it. This is an amazing story. I'm just thrilled for you, and I'm also realizing I need to become better friends with you. If you've been to 20 Super Bowls, I've never been to one. And let's let's become dearer friends, dear friend. Uh, but that's so exciting. I am just over the moon for you and the whole city of Cincinnati. Go Bengals. Less than two weeks away. It's got to feel a little bit surreal, but it's real, baby, and I hope that you guys go out there and win and put a bow on this thing. Thanks, Guy. Good to chat with you, brother. I hope you're right. Bill Hammer, co-host of America's Newsroom on Fox News Channel every morning. Our guest on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. That was a fun conversation with Bill Hammer. He's so stoked. And he should be. I'm just uh, so happy for him and Bengals Nation. If you're not a sports fan, not an NFL fan, you're probably like, oh, Move on. Well, we will in a second, but first, Tom Brady, as Bill mentioned in the last segment, announcing that he is, yes, retiring from football. After 22 seasons, he was in 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them. It just boggles your mind. And we discussed what the timing would be and was he maybe giving a second look at coming back for one more year. That was yesterday with Matt Napolitano. Well, now it seems finally, formally official Brady is done. But the speculation is not because people were saying in his farewell statement, he didn't mention the Patriots. He was there for, what, two decades? Won six of his Super Bowls in New England. Was that a snub? What's going on? Was he going to sign a one-day contract? I saw that speculation so he could retire as a Patriot 
or is there bad blood there? He eventually put a tweet out thanking Patriots Nation. I don't know. I feel like people might be digging a little too deep into some of the signals here. I'm not sure there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes drama. Maybe there is. But I cannot imagine, Dan, you're a huge sports guy. You worked for Dan Patrick for years. I cannot imagine Tom Brady not retiring as a Patriot. He has to go into the Hall of Fame as a Patriot. I would think so. But, um, you know, leaving the Bucks and people are so mad about him not thanking the Patriots. But he did when he left. I mean, he doesn't really owe you a lot. He gave you so many Super Bowls and just everything he had. So I don't know what the anger is about it. But he'll go down being known as a Patriot. Oh, yeah. The greatest quarterback of all time. He thanked them profusely when he left. They chose to part ways, right? And then he went and won a Super Bowl with the Bucks. Fine. He did put out the tweet today thanking the Patriots. The guy is the greatest quarterback. I'm not a huge fan, but he's the greatest quarterback of all time. It's not even close. And when he's instantly in the Hall of Fame, as soon as he's eligible, they'll put him in as soon as they can. Of course, he ought to be. And I cannot imagine him being anything other than a New England Patriot. Tom Brady retiring. 22 seasons of extraordinary excellence. And I think everyone in the AFC and now recently the NFC in particular, breathing a sigh of relief. No more Tom Brady anymore. It'll have to be someone else to step into that gap. But I think those shoes will never really totally be filled. Just look at the stats. Wild. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, media critic. We had a lot to discuss, of course. As usual, here's part of my conversation with Joe Concha. What do you make of this? It seems like a little bit of a flare-up. She also put out a statement which was pretty unequivocal apology. I don't really have a problem with the apology, but some people, it seems like, are now agitating for her to get fired. What's the latest here? Well, Whoopi Goldberg, guys, she resigned a new contract, fresh new contract with ABC uh, a few months ago, and it's a four-year deal that takes her through 20, let's see, it's season 28, they're in season 25, so a couple of years, and it goes into the seven-figure range. So, I hate to say it, but there is a business aspect to this. And when someone inks a deal like that and you're only a couple months out from it, it takes a lot to get you fired in these situations. And I think if Whoopi was in serious trouble, then she wouldn't have been back. They wouldn't have allowed her to go on Colbert last night. That's certainly for sure, uh, where she did a late-night appearance and kind of made things worse on some level. And then, obviously, today she's back on the air. She did the full-throated apology put into the teleprompter. And it appears that she'll survive at this point. I'm sure some staffers are upset. Obviously, a lot of people upset that she makes this argument about it not being about race, which was Hitler's entire argument that it was about race. Germanic people, a superior Jews, inferior, therefore six million need to be eliminated. Uh, uh, it, one of the most insipid things you'll ever hear on an insipid show in your life, uh, but she'll survive it because she roots for the right team, so to speak, ideologically. Does that make sense? It, it does. I also feel like she made a mistake. She had a misunderstanding. I, I don't think that – I understand that she's paid what sounds like, what, uh, millions of dollars to opine on things on national television on a regular basis, and she often seems to know – very little about things, including some of the statements she's made recently about COVID. That's a separate issue. I don't 
have a problem with her getting something wrong, getting educated about why it was wrong, and then issuing an apology, explaining why she was wrong and saying, I'm sorry. Like, I think there should be more of that kind of thing. I think it's wrong for people to be pushing for her to be fired. I don't like cancel culture. I don't like this type of thing where someone who you don't agree with a lot of the time or has, in fact, in her case, been very not generous and unkind to people on the other side when they step in it. I understand sort of the instinct for comeuppance and retribution. I just don't think it's a great game to play, and I don't think she should be fired. I think people should accept the apology and move on. My bigger concern, Joe, is that some people get that benefit of the doubt and other people do not. And sometimes it seems to come down to ideological tribe. And to your point, she's on the right tribe and a part of the correct tribe. And so this is the type of thing that won't get her canceled, whereas other people who are in the wrong think tribe, there's a bunch of people – you know, on hair trigger alert, trying to cancel all of us all the time. And there's not a lot of mercy uh, or grace shown to those folks. And I think that is a double standard that's worth talking about. Oh, completely. I mean, I always think, Guy, what if Joe Rogan said this, right? And <laughs> because everything oh. that Joe Rogan is saying these days is under a serious, serious microscope, as if he's Walter Cronkite and he's giving you the evening news on a nightly basis, right? Uh, when he's a guy having a conversation who's admittedly, uh, to his own admission, I should say, says he gets things wrong and he talks to people and he's curious and he's, he just wants to explore all angles and welcomes all perspectives. Uh, I, I don't really listen to Rogan, to be honest with you. I don't really listen to podcasts in general outside of this show, which isn't a podcast. It's a radio show, right? And, and a few others that, that fail a guy is pretty good before you. Uh, but, but overall... And we will point out, yes, this is a national radio show that becomes a free podcast every day on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. But you, yes, you, thank you. You've said that before. I, I feel there's, some, there's uh, definitely some repetitions there. Uh, but yeah, uh, well, so well done. Uh, but yeah, again, it just goes back to it's Whoopi, it's The View, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to see the soaring editorials in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Forget Joe Rogan. Let's say Tucker Carlson said something like this. Then the, the, the world, it would be the apocalypse. Like it, it, the Internet would melt into a little ball like at the end of Poltergeist. It would just be horrible. So it, it depends on the letter next to your name, so to speak. And since Whoopi has that big D next to it, then she gets off from this. That, that's the way it works. That full interview with Joe Concha available online, part of the podcast, Free, on demand, every single day. No charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, some frustration boiling over at producer Christine's daughter's school. A friend of theirs heading for the exits. I'll give you one guess where she's moving. That's coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday from the Tony Snow Studios in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening every day, 3 to 6. Catch me on Special Report coming up around 6.40 Eastern, Fox News Channel. I'll be on the panel tonight. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. Podcast is always free. Well, producer Christine was out yesterday. She had a sick child at home. Megan wasn't feeling well. But Megan made the mistake of telling the truth to her school, and now for ridiculous reasons, she is being barred from an event that she was looking forward to. It's been a pretty frustrating few days, it sounds like, with Megan and her education situation, Christine. Yeah, so, you know, we try to tell Megan 
you know, sometimes less is more when we're talking to the school about, like, where we're traveling and who has COVID and whatnot. Because if you remember, uh, last April, Megan was exposed to somebody and wound up being out of school. I think it was 17 days. Do you remember that yep. over Easter break? Yeah, it was totally crazy what they did. And by the way, if I recall correctly, Christine, she was out of school for 17 days despite testing negative repeatedly. Oh, yeah. We had done the PCR test. We had done rapid test. She was completely fine. And then, remember, it was they were wrapping it around an Easter. So they said, you know what, just keep her out a little longer. And there was no rhyme or reason. It, you know, last year was like a free-for-all, and it's starting to feel this way again. Megan had a little bit of a stomach thing going on yesterday. Obviously, it wasn't COVID. She already had COVID. She had a slight temperature. They call me. Well, she just had COVID, right? December. She just had COVID. We all had it. So I knew it wasn't that, but they uh, had me go get her. And uh, Megan had told them that her babysitter has COVID and her babysitter's family has COVID, she told the nurse. So now she's technically, quote unquote, exposed. And they didn't want her back in school now for a couple of days. So we had to do this whole thing again where I have to go get her tested. It's not good enough. Bobby is fighting and fighting with the school. It just It's like a roller coaster that we're dealing with every few months. And she missed her spelling bee, which was pretty important to her. Because they she wouldn't let her come in because no. someone that she knows has COVID. So then they go on high alert. She's not allowed in the building. So this spelling bee that she was preparing for and excited about, it went on without her. And that was, a, what, a huge bummer, I would imagine. Yeah, yesterday was a really rough day. She doesn't usually, you know, get emotional. It it, it was a rough day here. Um, And I I don't blame her. And then to top it off, I get a text message. Uh, Megan had made this very um, good friend in school this year. They, They play all the time together. I get a text message from her mother that she is sick of the way how our school's handling things and how just in general the state of New Jersey is handling things and she doesn't trust that the masks are going to be off of these kids anytime soon and she is getting a realtor to come to her house this week. She's putting it on the market and she wants to move to Florida. She's done. Wow. I mean, that's a story that we're seeing over and over again playing out in a lot of states like New Jersey. Let's come back to that in a second the Florida plans that they're hatching here. But tell us what happened that finally seemed to break the camel's back. There was this last straw that happened at school yesterday with something that a teacher said to your friend's daughter, right? I actually have the quote here. It's actually, it's pretty disturbing. And I, I'm sure she obviously went and uh, talked to somebody about it. But apparently, so I don't know if you know this, but if these kids are outside, you know, say the abnormally, you know, a little bit of warmer day, we're in winter here, but if the kids do get to go outside, they're in masks, even outside. Say they're running around yeah, playing a game or they're, they're in full, you have to be in a mask. And apparently, it's totally, daughter, let's just, let's pause there. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. There's no science involved in that decision or that policy whatsoever. It is the official policy in a number of places around the country. We've been talking about, obviously, Los Angeles County, where it's the rule for students, outdoor masking. And even at your daughter's school, a private school in New Jersey, because the public schools are also crazy and dictated by the governor and all this stuff, you decide, let's put Megan 
in a parochial school, they have been as fanatical and paranoid as anyone. And your daughter's friend and your friend's daughter, right? So this little girl, eight or nine years old, what, second grade, what happened yesterday? Uh, She was running around with a couple of friends in the parking lot. So outside, and a teacher started screaming at her saying, put your mask up. Do you want to get COVID and die? That's what she was told. That is just demented. That is just deranged. I'm sorry. I would not trust that individual, that teacher, to teach my child. Right? If you're out there putting the fear of death into a kid because she's not masked up outdoors, there is such a break from reality. There's such a disconnect from anything approaching science or rational behavior or treating kids the way they ought to be treated. I mean, do you want to die? Kids don't die from COVID. Overwhelmingly, there are some examples that are absolutely heart-wrenching, but they are the very rare, vanishingly rare exceptions to the rule. We've documented this over and over again. Kids are at greater risk many years from the flu. They're at greater risk in cars, like car accidents. They're at greater risk swimming in lakes or swimming pools. To be a teacher or a person in a position of authority and to know so little about COVID at this point or to know and not care to the point that you're telling frightening a little girl, put your mask on outside, you're going to get COVID and die. To me, that is really, really far over the line. I'm not surprised that your friend heard about that, had an earful for the school, and is putting her house on the market and getting the hell out of there. I mean, that is absolutely deranged. You know, when, it, when she first said this to me, I said, just let's calm down for a second. Maybe, you know, I don't think we're going to be in masks next year. And she said, how How do you know that? She goes, one sneeze in September and, you know, the mask mandate's back. She goes, I cannot trust this anymore. And I want my daughter to have a normal school life. This is Well, it's not already normal. been hard on the daughter, right? Like uh, you said, you were telling a yeah. story about Megan and, and school photo day, which I think encapsulated Megan's thoughts on it. But- This other girl that you're talking about here has had an even rougher time, right, with the masking? Yes, they're having they're having a pretty tough time. Megan seems to be go with the flow. I mean, she doesn't want to be wearing the mask. And I hear comments every now and then, um, you know, oh, it's so nice not to be wearing her mask. Uh, Megan brought home her school pictures yesterday. And I, you know, we're looking at the pictures of Megan. You know, so beautiful. Not yesterday, the other day. And. That Megan said to us, do you know what the best part about that day was? And we said, what? And she said the best part was when the photographer said everybody could take their mask off. That's what she thought the best part of picture day was. And she said all the kids started going, we like this guy. We want to stay with him. Yeah. there I saw there was a woman, a mother, who wrote about how her young child drew a self-portrait and there was no nose or mouth. The self-portrait was just eyes and an empty face. Like, it is, it's crazy out there, and I don't blame for a second a parent who has just been worn down time after time in one of these deep blue places with a bunch of neurotic psychos running the show and saying, I've had enough. I'm not going to do this to my family or my kids anymore. We're going to Florida. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not something that my husband and I would be doing, but I'm questioning the school. Like you said, where am I, what am I going to do? Put her in a public school? Because that's probably going to be worse. Yeah, I guess you never know. And by the way, one last note on this. Down the road from me, Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of these uh, very Democratic counties, That's where the school board is suing Governor Yunkin, and they're fighting, fighting, fighting to make sure every child has a mask on his or her face for eight hours, regardless of what the science shows. They don't care. They want to fight Yunkin. They want to pretend that it's about science and just ignore the data completely. They're fanatical about that. Well, the Fairfax County Public Schools just put out their calendar, their academic calendar for next year. Rory Cooper is a parental activist on this stuff. He lives out there. I saw his tweet about this the other day. Fairfax County Public Schools next year in Virginia, the majority of the school weeks on the calendar are four days or less. Most weeks in the upcoming academic year next year, most weeks are shortened weeks. The majority are four days or fewer, which blows my mind. I remember as a kid looking forward to those long weekends, those occasional Very occasional weeks where you had a Friday off or a Monday off for some reason. It was not a regular thing. It was certainly not a majority thing. It was a special irregular thing for certain holidays or teacher development days. And I think the fear from a lot of these parents is the teachers union and some of these teachers got a taste for three-day weekends and they don't want to relinquish it. And they feel like they can basically get away with anything, even though their party just lost in Virginia. The election just swung 12 points from blue to red. And still, you have Fairfax County saying, how about four-day school weeks? After all the learning loss, let's do even more learning loss. And what we're really going to fight on, what we're really going to get passionate about, is masking kids indefinitely and fighting the Republican governor. I mean, it's no surprise to me that there are people heading for the exits That's why with last week being school choice week, some families and parents who can't afford to send kids elsewhere, they need to have the resources to do that because the people making these types of decisions cannot have a monopoly over your children because a lot of them do not have your children's best interests at heart. And it's so offensive how the system and these bureaucrats seem to think that they know what's best for your kid. They'll call you racist and all these things. If you're concerned about the well-being of your child, you want to unmask your child. Oh, well, that's that's bad. That's irresponsible. Like you don't know what's best for your kid. Like you don't care about the health and well-being of your kid. You're better informed about this stuff than the decision makers are. Just on and on it goes. I know we keep wondering, is this finally going to be over? Is the dam breaking? Is the fever going to finally end? Maybe at some point. But in certain parts of the country, we're still a ways off from it. And I can understand the siren song of Florida and places like it being awfully appealing when you're just getting kicked in the face over and over again from administrators, from school board members, from the teachers unions, and teachers like the one who told your daughter's friend that she might get COVID and die because she didn't have a mask on outside. It's crazy. I know the home stretch is supposed to be fun, but now I'm getting hot. We're out of time. I will gather myself, regain my composure, 
and see you on Special Report, 640-ish Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio tomorrow, same time, same place. It's the Guy Benson Show. Good night. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.